welcome back. And our, our second talk this morning is called The Developing Brain. And we're going to explore in our talk this morning the human brain, some of the physiology of the human brain, and then we're going to explore parental and environmental influences uh, that influence the developing human brain. We're going to look at transgenerational influences, we're going to look at intrauterine influences and early childhood influences, and media and spiritual influences on the developing human brain. So the human brain is built out of 100 billion neurons or nerve cells with over 1 trillion supporting cells. And each neuron can have up to 10,000 connections with other neurons, highly interconnected, up to 40 quadrillion. That number doesn't even really calculate. We can't even really fully appreciate what that number means. But it's these interconnections that really make information processing possible. The more interconnections, the faster your processor works, the better your cognitive abilities, the better your discernment. And how do we get these interconnections? It's through exercise, the law of exertion. If you use it, you build the networks. You want stronger math ability, you work problems. Stronger musical skills, you practice your instrument. And we can see that with brain scans, people who do this, we can see growth in circuits of the brain that correspond to the activities or, or that they're engaging in. Uh, Albert Einstein's brain was biopsied after his death, and they noticed that per cubic centimeter, he had less neurons than the average person. But he had significantly more neuron-to-neuron -neuron connections than the average person. And it's those connections that make those networks for information processing. And he got those connections because he would spend hours in deep thinking and contemplation and problem solving that built those networks over time. We have the ability to do that as well as we engage the brain. The brain is soft, uh, kind of like a banana, maybe not quite that soft, but it's soft in a hard case, the skull, and it is um, vulnerable to rapid acceleration and deceleration injuries called concussions. And uh, the more concussions, then you can actually bruise the brain and have damage, and it can lead to increasing uh, mental health-related problems later in life. The brain weighs about three pounds, which is about one to 2% of the body weight. But even though it only weighs 1% to 2% of your body weight, it uses 20% of your body's energy. Or at least it's supposed to. <laughs> the human brain is so complex that 50% of the human genome, the coded information in our DNA, codes for the brain. Even though it's only 1% to 2% of the mass volume of your body, 50% of the information coded in our DNA codes for the brain. That's how complex your brain is. More than twice as many neurons are produced in fetal development that are eventually used. And during fetal development, there are times when 50,000 neurons are being produced per second. This will come back a little later as we talk about intrauterine environment, and you can see that anything that disrupts this, 50,000 neurons per second, you can do the math for just an hour or two. You can really disrupt neuronal development if it's at critical time periods. A baby comes into the world with millions of neurons more at birth that brain has than that brain will have by the time the child is eight years of age. For the first eight years of life, the brain is busy knocking off neurons by the millions. I know some of you think I needed those millions. 
But the, but the way to conceptualize this would be Michelangelo's block of marble when he gets it, and Michelangelo's block of marble when he's done with it. When he's done with it, he has less marble, doesn't he? But he has a masterpiece. The brain comes into the world prepared to be acted upon by education, environment, experience, neural circuits which are being exercised, law of exertion, and used will expand to become more complex. Neural circuits which are not being used, the brain either deletes, prunes back, or reassigns. This is normal brain development. That's why the first eight years of life are critical to establishing healthy neural pathways. There's a second wave of neurogenesis, neuro, neurons, genesis, creation of, a wave of neurogenesis, new neurons that peak uh, in the prefrontal cortex primarily of the brain in girls at age 11 and boys at age 12, followed by several years more of remodeling and reshaping. You all can figure out what that's about. Puberty, secondary sexual development, higher order thinking, this is a vulnerable time period. Lots of shaping, lots of vulnerability. Things we're exposed to in our adolescence can get wired in in more deeply embedded ways than if we get those exposures later in life. White matter maturation, and white matter is like the insulation and the neural circuits. White matter maturation um, finishes last at the prefrontal cortex. Brain doesn't fully finish developing until age 25. This is why adolescents, young adolescents, are often impulsive and moody, but the more mature we get, the more self-governance and deeper reasoning skills we develop because the prefrontal cortex finally finishes developing. Parental environmental influences on the developing brain. We're gonna come back to this. I just put this out here for you to think about for a few minutes and we'll come back to it. But the question is, how closely related are these mice? Is this a mom and a child? Um, pups from the same litter, pups from the same parents, but different litters, just members of the same species. How closely related? We will come back to these two mice a little bit later. Parents influence the developing brain in, in a couple of ways. Heredity, the genes they pass along, and environment, the environment in which the child's raised. If you haven't heard of the term epigenetics, Conrad Waddington coined this term in 1957 because he observed that in the human body, all the cells of your body have the same DNA. But your skin cells are different than your brain cells, which are different than your heart cells, which are different than your bone cells, which are different than your neurons. These, ner these cells are quite distinct and different, yet they have the same DNA. So he hypothesized there must be some set of instructions sitting above this library of information, your DNA, telling the DNA how to express itself, what to turn on and what to turn off in different parts of the body. So he turned, termed that epi above, genetics, genome, a set of instructions during a gene, and, and what we've discovered, in fact, it's true. Not only do you pass along to your children the DNA sequences, which is the coded information, you pass on to your children, and you're gonna discover grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, the epigenetic instructions that are telling the genes how to express themselves. So on the panel to the right, you just see a depiction of a DNA strand, and I want you to conceptualize the DNA strand as a zipper. As you unzip the zipper, and you see there's letters there, each molecule in the strand is a letter. And letters together form words, and words together form sentences and chapters, so there's this coded information. But the only way you get to the coded information is you have to unzip the strand. The, the <clears throat> panel on the left shows a chromosome and all the way uh, unwound and you have the 
DNA strand at the very end, and to get that information, you unzip it, but the, it's not stored in this way. It's wrapped around molecules called histones, and, and then those molecules, uh, the histone molecules, are packed into something called chromatin, and the chromatin is then packed into chromosomes. So in order to get the co coded information out, you have to unpack, unwind, and unzip. And so anywhere along that process, you can see these little uh, methyl groups, ME stands for methyl, that's a chemical group, it attaches to the strand. If a methyl group attaches to the zipper, conceptualize that as a shirt tail in your zipper. If you've had a shirt tail in your zipper, your zipper cannot unzip, it's stuck, okay? Methyl groups lock down the zipper. So that coded information is no longer accessible. It turns off the gene. Uh, you can modify it to histone tails with various types of molecules, either uh, removing or adding, which can accelerate or reduce expression of our genes. So all this is modifiable based on life experiences. Interesting thing with fruit flies, they exposed generation one to an antibiotic called gildenomycin. And that generation, uh, the gildenomycin, caused these bulging outgrowths on their eyes. And then they let the fruit flies reproduce, and they found that the next 13 generations had the same bulging outgrowths on their eyes, but there was no mutation to the DNA. The DNA was exactly the same sequences. What happened was there were epigenetic expression changes that passed down through generation two to 13, even though the generation two through 13 were never exposed to the antibiotics. So antibiotic, generation one, 13 generations affected by it, epigenetic change. Roundworms were fed a particular type of bacteria that caused them to lose a fluorescent protein and become dumpy appearing, and there was no mutation to the DNA. I hope you're hearing Darwin's theory about mutations passing down causing changes. Science has actually proven to not be true. It's epigenetic changes, as the Bible teaches, that happen in real time, passed down several generations, that, that happen. So no DNA sequence, no mutation happened, but the subsequent generations had the same manifestation changes, and they were not fed the bacteria, and it passed down 40 generations. Grandfathers who had a short food supply during their adolescence, meaning they were in like a starvation situation, increased greater risk of dying young on their grandsons and grandmothers to their granddaughters. And they evaluated this and they found that the starvation circumstances during their adolescence altered the X and Y gene expression that passed on increasing risk of dying young early to the kids. Not mutation change, epigenetic change. Men who smoke before the age of 11 increase obesity in their sons, not their daughters. Why? Because the smoking before age of 11 causes an epigenetic change on the Y chromosome that causes their sons to have greater risk of obesity. Interesting study with mice. They took generation zero, which is the first generation, and they conditioned the mice to, to be afraid of a certain smell called acetophenone. And in the mouse's olfactory bulb, they have a specific olfactory receptor that reacts only to this particular chemical. And so they could monitor this particular expression. How many receptors do they have in their olfactory bulb? They could look at the gene expression that there's the gene that codes for that olfactory bulb. And so they exposed them to acetophenone. And every time they exposed them to the acetophenone, they gave a loud bang noise, which caused the mouse to be frightened. And so classic conditioning, they became frightened of the smell. What was interesting is that their children and their grandchildren, generation F1 and 2, had hypomethylation. Remember what happens if we add a methyl group, 
shirt tail and the zipper, we lock down the gene. Hypo means reduced methylation. We've pulled methyl groups away. So we are now expressing the gene more. They had less um, of the methyl groups, so there were gene-increased expression. They had more uh, receptors in their olfactory bulb that specifically recognized this smell. So they were able to smell this smell at a further distance than their parents, and they were afraid of the smell, and they would shy away from it, having never been exposed to the loud bang. Is it a form of genetic memory, perhaps? Gestational factors. Smoking while pregnant, uh, the babies are born smaller. The, the babies are born with increased risk of sudden infant death syndrome. They have more learning and behavior problems later in life. They have increased risk of psychosis later in life if the mother smoked while pregnant. Well, what about air quality? Live in a city with lots of uh, polycarbon pollution. Recent study of 40 women and their children followed for seven to nine years found that there was a dose-dependent relationship between the amount of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, that's fossil fuel pollution in the, in, in the air, and the amount of white matter, more fossil fuel pollution, less white matter in the prefrontal cortex, higher rates of attention deficit, and decreased information processing speed in the kids if mom was pregnant in a high-polluted environment. What about alcohol when pregnant? Increased risk of the children having psychotic disorders later in life? It's, this was interesting. If your mother drank alcohol while she was pregnant with you, it caused an epigenetic change in your taste buds so that if you ever taste alcohol, it will actually taste better to you than had mother not drank alcohol while she was pregnant with you. Increased risk of mental retardation, multiple organ defects. If it's heavy alcohol use, you can get fetal alcohol syndrome. But what happens if mom drinks one drink of alcohol, say one glass of wine a week during pregnancy, just one glass of wine a week or less during pregnancy? That's really insignificant, isn't it? Remember what I told you earlier about fetal development? There are times when 50,000 neurons are being produced per second. Alcohol is a neurotoxin. What does the data show? One glass of wine or less per week. The children are shorter, born shorter with smaller heads. They have later in life more behavior problems, more delinquency, and more emotional problems than if mother had not drank any alcohol at all during pregnancy. It affects neural development. What about cannabis while pregnant? What the data shows is that currently, most recent research shows that 16% of pregnant women use illegal drugs while pregnant. 16% use illegal drugs while pregnant. The number one drug of choice is cannabis. The rate has doubled from 2009 to 2016 of pregnant women using cannabis. Does that surprise anyone? With all of the legalization and, uh, and the various states around. In Colorado, 70% of Colorado marijuana cannabis dispensaries recommend cannabis for pregnancy-related sickness. And 36% of, of those dispensaries reassure the pregnant woman that it's safe. I'll show you what the science shows. It crosses the placental barrier and alters brain development. It's secreted in the breast milk up to one week after use. It causes anemia in the pregnant mother, which can have all other consequences, including oxygenation of the baby. It results in low birth weight, increased risk of preterm delivery, stillbirths, and more likelihood of an a neonatal ICU hospitalization after birth. The children whose mother smoked marijuana while pregnant will have increased impulsivity problems later in life, increased delinquency, more learning and memory problems, uh, increased risk of psychosis, and decreased executive function, ability to organize, plan, prioritize, strategize, stay on task. 
increase autism. It doubles the rate of autism. This is significant, folks. Have you, hear, have you heard the outrage? Cannabis and pregnancy causing autism. Have you heard the scream across our nation? No, because it's been drowned out by the lie about immunizations. Everybody screams about the no evidence. In fact, it's been deeply researched, and there's no, no identifiable relation between immunizations and autism yet. But there is a direct relationship, doubling the rate of autism with marijuana, cannabis during pregnancy, but there's silence. Why? In the mothers, the cannabis actually increases anxiety, increases depression, increasing suicidal thoughts. If you're at risk for bipolar mania or psychosis, it increases your risk of having a manic or psychotic episode. And it increases the likelihood of using other illegal substances and alcohol if you're using cannabis. Does that surprise anybody? How about mothers thinking while pregnant? Will that affect the developing brain? Well, the data of a study of over 4,000 mothers and their children followed for 18 years found that if the mother while pregnant had depressogenic, pessimistic, negative thinking patterns while pregnant, it increased the risk of her child having depression 18 years later. And when they uh, accounted for all the other variables that could be at play, the, the researchers found that this, just the negative thinking alone increased the risk by 21%. Now, why might that be? Different study gives some insight into that. What happens if mother's highly stressed while pregnancy? Now, it may not be she has depressogenic negative thinking patterns. It may be she's actually highly stressed. For instance, 19-year-old woman who's pregnant and her husband's in the military and gets deployed to a combat zone while she's pregnant. Will she be stressed? Yep. Uh, a young woman who's pregnant whose mother gets diagnosed with late-stage cancer during her pregnancy, will she be stressed? It doesn't mean she necessarily, or, or a woman in her pregnancy, uh, a hurricane or tornado hits and their house gets destroyed or, or her home fire happens. Will, will she have stress? Stress happens. It doesn't mean she has negative thinking patterns. Okay? But if she's highly stressed during pregnancy, she will have increased glucocorticoid steroid hormones that will cross the placental barrier, cross the developing blood brain barrier in the fetus, and will alter epigenetically the breaking mechanism that the brain has on the amygdala, the brain's stress circuitry. And thus, the children are born with increased anxiety, increased fear, increased moodiness, increased irritability, and, and this passes on into their early childhood, and they will come into the, uh, as an infant, as a more irritable and more difficult to console infant than had the mother not been highly stressed. What you're going to discover is, regardless of, uh, of what happens before birth, from the moment of birth, I'm going to go through some data in a minute, will show that everything will begin affecting the brain in positive or negative ways at that point. This is just telling us what happens if that were to occur. We can do things to mitigate that. Coming up next. Now, I asked you about these two mice earlier. How closely related are these two mice? And we're going to look at how diet of mother can affect developing fetus. But how closely related? Well, I will tell you, these are clones, which means uh, common vernacular, identical twins, you could say. Identical twins are clones. Do they look identical to you? No. What's the difference? A single gene is expressed differently. It's called the agouti gene. If the agouti gene is turned on, then the animal is obese, blonde, and diabetic. If the agouti gene is turned off, then the animal is thin, brown-furred, and non-diabetic. And so on the uh, left, you'll see an animal with the, essentially most of the genes in the body, agouti genes turned on, because every cell has its own set of genes. On the right, most of them are turned off, but in the middle, you have partial expression, partial penetrance. Some of the agouti genes are on, and some of them are off. And you can see some brown fur and some blonde fur. Well, what turns on the agouti gene in 
our society, one of the things it does is bisphenol A, which is a byproduct of plastics. We'll turn this gene on. And why do I have cans on there then? Because cans are lined with plastic so that the, what's in the can doesn't interact with the metal and cause corrosion and things like that. So plastics can increase the expression of agouti gene. What turns the agouti gene off? Methylation. Remember, a methyl group attaching to that DNA region will shut the gene off. And so they took these blonde, obese, diabetic mice that had the agouti gene turned on, and during their pregnancy, they supplemented the mother's diet with folic acid and B12. Folic acid and B12 are methyl donors. They give lots of methyl groups away. And what did they discover? That the children of the blonde, diabetic, obese mice were born with the agouti gene turned off. They were born brown, thin, non-diabetic. And then what happened is they let the children have children, and then the grandchildren have children, and the great-grand... And what they discovered is the methyl lockdown passed down three and four generations. Not only the children that, who were born to the mothers whose diet was supplemented, then they had children, but their diet was not supplemented, and their children had children, and their diet was not supplemented, but the lockdown continued to pass down three and four generations. Any Bible texts come into mind? Okay, things passed down three and four generations. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. Epigenetic modification based on real-life experiences passing down to our kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids. Now, this is important when you're dealing with adolescents because a lot of adolescents will say things like, well, it's my body, I can do what I want. Only if you're never planning on having kids. Because if you're going to have kids, they're not only messing with your body, you're messing with your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids. Now, this gives us insight into a Bible story, Genesis chapter 30. Do you ever wonder about Jacob and the, and the sheep and how he took the branches and peeled them and put them in the water and had them drink them, and he got more spotted and speckled sheep, which made his wealth go up because that was his pay? Well, they've actually researched that, and the particular branches he, um, that he chose to put into the water to have them drink actually had proper chemicals in it to cause the methylation expression changes in the agouti gene in the sheep, and so they actually were born more speckled, spotted, and striped. So the Bible is right again. Uh, what about gestational effects of food supply? During the World War II in the Netherlands, uh, there was a severe food shortage where pregnant women were eating about 500 calories a day during their pregnancy. And the children born during this time were compared to the brothers and sisters of the same parents who were born either before the f f severe shortage or after. And what they found is the children born, born during the starvation time period, or the short food supply time period, had higher rates of diabetes, obesity, and metabolic problems like hypercholesterolemia and so forth than the siblings of the same parents. And then they looked at gene expression, and what they found is that the obese kids born during the food shortage had 5% less methyl caps on this particular gene. If we remove methyl groups, what are we doing to the gene? Shutting it down or turning it on? Turning it on. This gene gets increased expression, and what the scientists discovered is this gene allows your body to extract more energy from food. And so what happens is this fetus is developing in an environment with 500 calories a day. A signal goes and says, hey, you're coming to the world with very, very little uh, nutritional support out there, uh, le less methyl caps on this particular gene, and thus they're able to extract more energy out of the same food, but then the war's over. Normal food amounts, they eat the normal amounts of food of other people, but they're extracting more energy. They have higher rates of obesity, diabetes, and, and hypercholesterol problems, epigenetic changes. Parents and environmental factors. Animal studies, they took 
Now, we talked about what happens epigenetically intrauterine, highly stressed mom, alters uh, the amygdala, causing the, uh, the infant to be born more stressed. Well, these are uh, animal studies looking at pups after birth who were attended to, licked and groomed, were compared to mu- uh, pups that had a neglect mom, didn't pay them attention, didn't lick them, didn't groom them. And what they discovered is that the pups of the attended mo- attentive mothers uh, were more capable of calming their amygdala. The neglect mothers had upregulated amygdala. They were more anxious, more stressed, and more socially impaired. So early grooming, attention, touching, loving alters brain development. Well, scientists said, well, maybe that's not really the issue. Maybe this is genetic. Maybe these uh, neglect moms have some genetic problem that impairs their social function, and they're just passing along that social function uh, impairment to their kids. And so they took the pups from the neglect moms uh, at birth and put them in with an attended mom who licked and groomed and followed their brain development, and the brain development was normal. So it was not genetically driven, it was environmentally driven. So if you have a child and uh, the child is born, maybe you're highly stressed during pregnancy, but then you hold, you caress, you touch, you love, you give affection, all this type of stuff sends a very positive signal into the brain development, calming the amygdala, helping improve socialization and reducing fear. This is why postpartum depressions are so bad, because postpartum depressions cause the mothers that are severely depressed to be less available. They don't have the energy. They don't hold as much. They don't interact as much. They don't have this facial expression as much. They don't kiss as much, and thus they don't touch as much, and thus it impairs, causing the children to have more anxiety and stress. That's why it's really important to treat postpartum depression. Childhood uh, stress decreases the circuitry of the brain where you experience reward or validation or joy or benefit. So uh, stress between kindergarten and third grade was a predictor of decreased firing in the brain circuits where you experience pleasure and reward at age 26. So if you are between ages of five and eight and you have a high stress circumstance, parents going through a divorce house burns, uh, trauma. We'll talk about trauma a little bit later. But it alters brain development such that your reward circuit does not give you the same pleasure out of rewarding experiences. And these then individuals will have much higher risks of addictions, mental health problems, uh, or um, thrill-seeking behaviors to try to get some activity in this reward circuit because it's not firing normally. That's kind of negative stuff. Let's give you a positive one. They... uh, took mice and they bred them to have, uh, to be dumb, to have difficulty in learning. And then they took, and these are clone mice, and then they took a group of them compared to the controls, so they're all genetically identical, all have the same genetic defect, all have the same problems in learning, but one group of the mice were put in an enriched environment for two weeks in their adolescence. And that's what a mouse-enriched environment looks like. Lots of stuff from the play on, interact with, and so forth. Not surprising, um, the mice with the enriched environment compared to those with just an empty um, you know, uh, environment, they had better memory. That didn't really surprise people because you're exercising and using it more. But then they allowed those that had the enriched environment to have offspring, And those offspring were not given the enriched environment. And guess what? They also had the improved memory. Why? They had a gene defect. But the environment of their parents that was positive for them caused an epigenetic change, turning off the gene defect so that the children without the enriched environment were still born with the gene, the bad gene turned off, so they were born with normal memory. Everybody follow that? And this is just showing in this particular case, it was through... um, a histone modification rather than methylation of the actual gene. But that's where it happened with a modification from the environment, but it altered the gene expression, and the kids were born with the normal memory. Pretty cool.
What they found for kids that are protective, that give them resilience, that help them be more successful, to cope and manage in life, two factors in the home that are extremely critical for, for well-adjusted adults. And that is having a family member confidant, somebody in their home that they can come home to and talk about themselves being bullied, somebody that they can come home to and they can actually share their fears and insecurities with, somebody they feel, in other words, they don't have to be afraid of what they're gonna say at home. Home is a safe place that they can open up and unwind it. Neurobiologically, it's not just the confiding, it's the being able to feel safe in a safe space to do those things. And the other is family cohesion. That's the sense that we have each other's back. It's that bonding. I have a team of people who's on my side who will protect me and watch out for me and there to help me in the time of need. So if they have family member confidant and a family cohesion, both of those things gives resilience and helps them manage and adjust in life much more effectively. Other environmental influences, tobacco, alcohol, and marijuana. Nicotine binds to the receptors that regulate neural development. So teens who smoke have higher rates of psychosis, higher rates of anxiety problems and depression, and they have more medical problems, and they have more difficult time quitting because the circuits of reward and addiction, you become more physically addicted, neurobiologically, if you start smoking in your adolescence than if you wait until your 20s to start smoking. That's why the tobacco companies target adolescents, because if they can get them smoking then, they'll probably have a lifelong smoker. Um, whereas if you smoke later, it's easier to uh, start later, it's easier to quit. Uh, alcohol, and interesting with alcohol, when you drink alcohol acutely, it, if you drink enough, not just like you know one tablespoon of something, but you drink enough to feel the effects, what it's doing is it's altering the ion pathways in real time, allowing uh, chloride ions to rush inside your cells, sedating them, and you get this sedating feeling, the sluggish feeling, the unwind, the buzz feeling, all that happens is ionic, to, uh, causing ion shifts in the neurons themselves. It's very, very poor. Um, medicine, if you want to call it that, because it's, it's, um, it causes, requires high concentrations, causes the membranes of the neurons to become stiff, and it physically pulls those ion channels open, causing this to happen. But and so you get that relaxing effect. Oh, it relaxed me. I feel better. But simultaneously, it causes an epigenetic change in a Y-peptide that will begin to be produced in your brain. And this Y-peptide actually turns on the amygdala, and, you, and once the ionic clears, once the alcohol clears your system eight hours later, the ions shift back to the normal state. This Y-peptide is now there, upregulating your amygdala, and your baseline anxiety level just went up. You have more anxiety than had you not drank through epigenetic modification. So you're going to drink more because it relaxes you, and that's going to cause more epigenetic change, which is going to cause you more anxiety in between, so it reinforces the need to drink to help yourself relax. Marijuana increases the risk of psychosis up to 40%, particularly in vulnerable populations with family histories. Damages white matter tracts. Uh, it impairs prefrontal cortex function, drives a sense of apathy, listlessness, lack of initiative and drive. Uh, several studies now have shown that it uh, lowers IQ if you smoke marijuana before the age of 18. Uh, significant, eight points lower in IQ. So. If you're at the median IQ of 100, that means that you're at 50th percentile. 50% of people in the society are smarter than you, and 50% are not as smart as you if you're at an IQ of 100. If you lower that, lower that to by eight points, which what early marijuana smoking will do, you have an IQ now of 92. Still in the normal range, but now you're at the 28th percentile of intelligence. 72% of people in society are smarter than you now. And this never fully recovers. It will recover some if you stop, but never fully. Uh, it causes structural changes to the memory circuits, the hippocampus of the brain, that impairs learning. 
What about media influences? I'm only going to do a little bit on this. We have a whole lecture. It's so good on the uh, social media and media influences on, on your child, but just a, a little bit. Seven studies have confirmed that uh, children who watch TV of any kind before the age of two have delayed language development. Any kind of television. doesn't matter what it is. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry recommend no TV of any kind for children at the age of two, and then strict limits thereafter. So uh, what is the impact that television has on the brain? This is theatrical now. I'm going to make the distinction between theatrical and educational after the age of two, and there's a difference. Theatrical is your entertainment stuff, the stuff you watch for fun, the stuff you pay to go to a movie theater to see. This type of stuff's primary effect on your brain is to, its goal is to get an emotional reaction out of you. It wants to get you to laugh or get you to cry or get you uh, stressed and anxious and frightened. It's trying to get an emotional reaction while simultaneously suspending thinking. Theatrical television does not want you reasoning and thinking. If you question me on this, I challenge you, go home this weekend, turn on one of your favorite shows, and the entire time engage thinking and ask, how likely is this to happen in real life? Is this really reasonable? There are very few, I can't hardly watch anything. And my friends don't want me around when they're watching anything. <laughs> they don't, because I'm constantly, this is so stupid. Oh, that's just, if, you are, if your brain is engaged and you can quickly see the logic drops, the inconsistencies, the irrational assumptions, like the classic is the, any type of a chase. The, the, the cops and the robber, whatever, any type of a chase. And the, and the person, you'll see, there are all kinds of irrational things, like a police officer who's a good actor, but the police officer's severely overweight, and he's chasing a 15-year-old adolescent basketball player, but he's able to chase him down after a two-mile chase. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, people, really? He probably couldn't go two blocks and he's uh, fallen over. Or the more classic when you see it, that somebody's running and they go around a corner and you can see in this scene that they're 200 yards apart. But the very next scene, they're only 20 yards apart. Did he get, did, 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 did Scotty beam him up and beam him back down? I mean, it's irrational. So if you're thinking, you're going to find that it's not, so, so my point to you is, understand the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you exercise it. If you don't exercise, if you don't use it, you lose it. So theatrical television exercises emotion circuits while it suspends activity in thinking reasoning circuits. So the more television kids watch, then the more emotional, moody, and impulsive they get, and the less reasonable they become, and the less they are able to self-govern and restrain themselves. So the seminal study on this was done by Centerwall back in the 90s. It's still a really good study. He wanted to see if there was an association between theatrical television watching and violence in society. And they used three societies, United States, Canada, South Africa. Canada, United States, television came in in our countries in 1945. South Africa, no television in the whole country until 1974. He included Canada, uh, and the black and white indicator of, of, of violence in society is murder rates, homicide rates. He included Canada. Canada has very strict gun control laws. If there was an increase in the United States, he'd want people to say, well, you got guns everywhere, what's your problem? So he included Canada. And in South Africa, he looked at white on white only homicides because he wanted to take out any apartheid artifact during that time. And so what did he find? From 1945 to 1974, homicide rates in the United States increased 93%. In Canada, they increased 92%. In South Africa, during the same time, they dropped 7%. Here's the kicker. They looked at homicide rates in South Africa after the introduction of television. 
from 1974 to 1987, white on white homicide jumped 130%. Now people will say, oh, you get bad violent content in, you get bad violent content out, okay, all right, I get that. No, that's secondary. Primary is neurobiological law of exertion. Think about the television programming on in the United States between 1945 and 1974. Can you think of some of those old shows? Andy Griffith, I Love Lucy, Leave it to Beaver. Here's the violent one, Gunsmoke. And what's Gunsmoke rated today? It's G-rated. G-rated programming gets you a 92 to 93% rise in homicide. Did the programming get worse after 74? Yes, and so the worsening of the program magnifies the problem, but the problem is primarily neurobiological, exercising emotion circuits, not developing prefrontal cortex self-restraint circuits, and thus when the emotions hit, the hormones hit in adolescence, they're more moody, they're more impulsive, and so not only does it go to homicide rates, the issue is it also goes to early sex. They will have sex at an earlier rate because they don't have impulse control. They act out aggressively, violently, and they also turn to substances to calm themselves because they don't have a prefrontal cortex to process their emotions and calm them. Um, Zimmerman and Christaki wanted to look at this slightly differently, so they looked at R-rated violent theatrical programming, G-rated nonviolent theatrical programming, and educational programming, and they did standardized measures of attention and focus, concentration, kind of ADHD-type symptomology, which is prefrontal cortex function. And what they found was that theatrical programming of any kind, whether it's R-rated violent or G-rated uh, nonviolent, impaired attention, focus, concentration, prefrontal cortex. Educational programming did not. It is not about, and, and by the way, that's really good news, because our videos, they're educational. They're okay. Uh, exposure to television coverage predicts fear of terrorism. You let your kids watch news and television, they have social media posts focus on fear and negative sentiment, 51%, uh, and misleading information 60% of the time. Higher social media exposure associated with higher psychological distress. And we're gonna get a lot more on this, um, but television exposure increases the, uh, the rates of PTSD. So spiritual factors. Uh, so, um, Newberg and his group took a group of individuals 65 years of age and older and had them meditate 12 minutes a day on a God of love. Prior to the meditation, they measured the anterior cingulate cortex is where you experience empathy, compassion, altruism. They also took baseline measures of heart rate and blood pressure, which is a me measure of your stress level. If you're highly stressed, it, uh, your amygdala fires activating um, your adrenal glands, kicking up your blood pressure and heart rate. So it's a way to measure your amygdala activation. And they did standardized memory testing. At the end of 30 days, meditating 12 minutes a day on a God of love, they could measure growth in the anterior cingulate cortex. It was larger. But their heart rate and blood pressure was lower because when your love circuits are active, they send a calming signal down to your amygdala, your fear circuits. Perfect love casts out fear neurobiologically, lower heart rate and blood pressure. And they had 30% improvement in memory testing all within 30 days. Then they had another group, 65 years of age and older, meditate 12 minutes a day on an angry God, a punishing God, a distant God, an uncaring God. Didn't get this, this positive results. God of love was positive. They had another group met, meditate on nothing. Just meditate on blackness or emptiness or nothing. They actually shown benefit. Why? Because anterior cingulate cortex is not only where you have altruism and empathy, it's also, we talked about earlier, seat of the will. 
And so they had to exercise their will to just stay focused on nothing. And that exercise of their will to stay focused on nothing developed the anterior cingulate cortex, sending a calming tone down the amygdala. But that response was not as robust as the meditating God of love. It was much more robust than meditating on God of love. Uh, youth who volunteer experience greater academic achievement, civic responsibility, and life skills than those who don't volunteer. Acting on love, benefiting, and reaching out to others. There's a whole host of happiness uh, science now, and people who help others have higher measures of happiness than people who do acts of kindness for themselves. No change in happiness doing acts of kindness for yourself, but doing acts of kindness for others results in greater happiness to you. Not a surprise. So how healthy spirituality helps reduce the risk of mental illness? It activates your prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex, which sends a calming signal down to your fear circuitry, lowering inflammatory cascades in your body, resulting in both better mental and physical health. And I will walk through this in much greater detail in our talk on recovering sexual abuse. Now, altruistic activities result the same, same result, better relationships, less fear of retaliation. When you're actually blessing others, you don't fear how they're going to think of you. Uh, so you have less anxiety and stress relationally when you uh, engage in altruistic activities. Reduce anxiety and worry. Um, people who have healthy spirituality tend to take better care of themselves, so they don't abuse their bodies with illegal substances and so forth, so they have less oxidative damage to their body. They uh, tend to be more forgiving and, and less likely to hold resentment, which drives uh, drives a lot of stress when you hold resentment or don't forgive. So in summary, the brain is highly complex and susceptible to change throughout our entire life. As long as you're alive, your brain is still changing. Environment causes marked changes in brain development, and environment alters our gene expression, and we not only pass down our gene sequences, we pass down the epigenetic instructions telling those genes how to express themselves. Thank you all very much. Thank you.